welcome to Voices of Care, the podcast series from New Cross Healthcare, which aims to go to the very heart of the issues facing the health and social care sector. We're aiming to meet the challenge of the questions that are being asked to how we can truly help enable the healthcare workforce of the future. I'm Sahail Mirza, and it's vital that at this moment, social care is under the spotlight. Reports are that people are leaving, the workforce is leaving in droves from the sector. The Health Foundation says the situation in social care is desperate. It's never been perhaps more important to hear from people who can help us understand what is going on and some of the challenges and opportunities that may be provided in terms of learning and development. To that end, I'm honoured and delighted to, to welcome Dr. Jane Townsend, the Chief Executive of the Home Care Association, to join us today. Thank you very much, Jane, Thank for joining us as ever. Thank you, Sahil. You're always welcome. And also to welcome Mark Storey, Head of Learning Innovation at New Cross Healthcare. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I'd like to jump straight in, Jane. Um, Skills for Care have pulled no punches, highlighting uh, the scale of vacancies within social care generally. We've also seen uh, the fact that care has been recognised by the current Health Secretary as part of the alphabet ABCD priority. Um, but we're also seeing, according to the New Cross Healthcare Care Survey conducted by YouGov, uh, that 27% of those surveyed within the care sector were likely to leave in the next 12 months. There really is a crisis, is there not, amongst the workforce in home care? Definitely, and we're seeing that translate into problems discharging people from hospital. This week, uh, Nuffield Trust reported that one in four people who are stuck in hospital are waiting for home care. And then at the front end, because people are being neglected in the community, they're deteriorating, ending up in ambulances in A&E, when with some support at home, we could keep them safe and well in their own homes, you know. So it makes no sense. It's, it's a false economy. And just to help our listeners, the NHS is well understood and lauded. Um, social care broadly is now growing, perhaps, perhaps not equal parity, but getting there. Home care is, I'd like to venture to suggest, less understood um, as a sector. And yet its scale is vast and its contribution significant. Perhaps you can expand upon that in some of the work that the Home Care Association have done in terms of what the market is and how all-encompassing it is in terms of the healthcare landscape. Yeah, so... Overall, in social care, there are 1.62 million filled posts, which is higher than the NHS, which comes in at 1.4 million. And of the 1.62 million, 850,000 are home care. And over the last 10 years, the home care workforce has grown by almost 30%, whereas the residential care workforce has remained fairly static. And some of that, well, a lot of it is driven by growing demand. So we've got a population ageing with multiple long-term conditions. And obviously the preference of most people is to stay at home as well. And, you know, surrounded by people that they love in familiar surroundings and able to do what they want when they want, eat what they like and have who they want to visit them and so on. So that choice and control piece is really key. We've seen uh, during the pandemic a 
shift in public awareness of home care and a public preference. So we commissioned YouGov to do a survey in July 2021, and 35% of the public said that they were more likely to choose home care as a result of the pandemic than they were would have been before. Most of that was to do with choice and control. I think the sort of restrictions in care homes during the pandemic had quite an impact on people. And Expanding, we're going to come on to the question of funding, which uh, I think has been uh, described as a national scandal by the House of Lords Economic Affairs Committee three years ago. I want to look at the question of pay, if I may. The King's Fund has done a report and analysis showing 10 years ago the pay rate for someone in care was 13 pence per hour higher than someone in retail or sales. 10 years later, it's 21 pence per hour less. This has a profound effect. And I wanted, if I may ask Mark... New Cross Healthcare, its commitment in terms of supporting people to have a national living wage and being accredited by the National Living Wage Foundation is an important part of its ethos. Absolutely, and I I think Jane will go on to say that it's not enough, Mm -hmm. and I absolutely agree, but it's part of our commitment or desire to show that a career in social care or healthcare is is a, a viable career option. And when you're in a job where if a supermarket opens up down the road, then you can earn more money and probably have more sociable hours in the work, then, yeah, that's not a good situation to be in. So as an employer, we're doing what we can, and there is more to do, and it's not just about pay. I think there is a pay element to it, but there are also other benefits that we can offer as a result of being a large employer. And when we come on and talk about career development and enhancing people's ability to develop their careers, then uh, I think that plays into that that mix of what we can offer the healthcare and social care staff as well. No, thank you for sharing that. I think that the numbers are that, uh, on average, the uh, New Cross healthcare workforce uh, receives uh, pay 16.4% above the national living wage, just for, for the record. But to expand that beyond pay, that the supermarket effect is well known. Um, funding, it feels like we've had this conversation over and over and over again. I know there was a white paper and there is, you can't talk about the levy anymore, but the numbers that have been raised. Can we go to the heart of how important that is? Because until we address funding, we're not going to solve the workforce crisis in home care. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm, I've heard you say that many times. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's pay and terms and conditions. It's it's not just the headline pay rate. It's also about security of income and the way that work is organised. So many councils still purchase home care by the minute. So that puts such a lot of pressure on the care workers. They feel that they're rushing from one place to the next and they're in it because they want to make a difference to people's lives and they want to uh, meet people's needs. And it's really stressful when you can't do that. And we're seeing in some areas an increase in the, in the amount of 15-minute visits. Well, you know, you've barely parked and got in the door and, you know, somebody got out of their chair and then you've got to go again. It's just not enough time for the level of need that people have. So... Yeah, you know, that the, the fundamental issue is the inve- lack of investment. And that investment is not just required to pay the workforce, but also for other elements of investment, such as improving digital innovation and uh, uptake, which it, it helps the workforce too. So, you know, we found that when 
uh, care workers are given smartphones and they can see their rotor on it and they can also use the other apps to communicate with each other and because it's a remote workforce so it's quite hard to to communicate and to achieve that sense of belonging which is also important but the the apps can help with that so but that all requires money too so it's hopeless trying to go along on a shoestring and we can see the impact on the NHS you know the government's spending less than four percent on it for less than four percent is spent on home care of the NHS budget um and and yet you know the NHS can't can't function really unless the surrounding community services are operating smoothly and we're seeing <clears throat> perhaps that being borne out with the ambulance challenges mm. um I know it's part of the mission of the Home Care Association for the sector to be valued and respected. Uh, I guess you're saying until the funding issue's tackled, um, we just don't have that. I mean, funding is not the only issue, but it's definitely a key one. If if you look at other sectors, so somebody said to me that hotel managers used to be not a very well-paid job, and that changed, and it's been more professionalized you know you can do degrees in hotel management and um the the esteem of those roles has increased so i think that's what we we need and it you know there are cultural issues as well sometimes we find professionals in other parts of the health and care system not necessarily showing uh, as much respect as they might because actually the home care workers know the people that they're supporting better than anyone because they're in there four times a day sometimes. Um, So having to justify everything to, say, district nurses or social workers when actually they probably know better than anyone what's required is is another issue. No, thanks for sharing that. Um, I want you to expand looking further ahead. Uh, All the projections show... Uh, that we need a health and social care committee uh, in July this year, put 490,000 more roles in social care over the next decade or so. Uh, part of the survey um, conducted by YouGov on behalf of uh, New Cross Healthcare found that 60% of the respondents were asked to do tasks for which they had no qualifications. So I wanted, Mark, if I could come to you first in your role to expand upon what New Cross is doing because part of its mission is to be the learning partner for life within the sector and that's a startling finding from that survey it is and we find with our staff that there is a huge appetite for learning and what that represents to me much what to echo what jane said particularly in the the areas of the business where people are looking after uh, our staff are looking after people in their own homes there is a real appetite to understand those care needs at quite some depth and uh, and perhaps beyond the the price point of that member of staff so we find that there's a huge appetite for learning and part of the learning partner for life initiative is that our our vision the world that we want to create in this spin-off offering called future you is universal access to free healthcare education and that's right from entry level so create more people coming into the sector but the people that are already in the sector provide them career opportunities to advance their their lot within the sector right up to degree level and if we can if we can achieve that vision if we can enable uh, healthcare professionals to achieve their potential then um, 
I think will be playing into what is already a healthy appetite for, for that kind of learning and career development within the sector, but isn't present everywhere. No, absolutely. And to, to, to allow you to expand upon that, Jane, some of you, obviously your members are faced with the, the constraints that they have, but there's been some great work which you've highlighted in some of your research in terms of career development and offering a, a skills pathway for people within home care. Yeah, I think you know, Mark's right that um, the, the skills required, um, they're many and varied. And during the pandemic, we saw more tasks being delegated to home care workers because other professionals like GPs, district nurses, social workers were told to remain at home as much yep. as possible. And unfortunately, in some cases, those expectations were placed without the training. So having access to training is very welcome. What was, I, I, I feel excited by the opportunities for building on that. Um, the, the, the technologies for remote health monitoring, we're seeing the NHS focus more on hospital at home, services that they're calling anticipatory care, but that's the idea of uh, identifying people with complex needs and focusing on preventative work with them. And... Yesterday, I was also at a meeting when NHS colleagues were talking about sort of nationally commissioning intermediate care in, in a structured way, which it has been done before, but kind of piecemeal. Mm -hmm. So I think the whole mood music is, can we sh shift to a more community focus? And that's, that's very welcome. But there are more sort of challenges about accessing training with a remote workforce and with people that are very busy and, and the, the, you know the the the, the sh shorter you are of labor the harder it is to find time to do the training so you know we've noticed that there's been an increase in in appetite for online forms of learning as well because you can be very flexible about that but there you know the kind of um things that some of our members are doing you know for example when you've got the data that 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 comes from digital, you can see what's going on more clearly. So they noticed with their particular client group that people were ending up in hospital with urinary tract infections that hadn't been uh, diagnosed early enough. And what would happen before was that the uh, doctors would sort of say, or the, the care worker would phone up and say, oh, Betty's a bit off colour. Um, and the GP would say, well, just leave her for a few days. You know, she might pick up. Mm. But what the uh, provider did was train their staff in doing some simple physiological observations, you know, temperature um, and doing urine dip tests. So they're not diagnosing, but when they phone the GP, they say, you know, Betty's off color. I've done a urine dip test. This was the result. I've done the temperature. This was the result. And they found that the GPs then were much more willing to prescribe straight away. And they reduced unplanned admissions to hospital by 63% just from doing that, which is really simple. So if you imagine scaling that kind of approach um, and, you know, all kinds of other areas, you know, dementia, diabetes, care, you know, n nobody in care is trying to diagnose or do anything clinical, but you can, they can work under the direction and what we'd really like to see, I think, are more multidisciplinary teams on the ground. Because in practice, that's what happens. You know, mm. the, the care workers talking to the district nurses, the social workers, the hospital staff. It, it's all a little bit ad hoc. If, if everybody felt that they were part of a team, 
and, and I like the anticipatory care idea because of that. And then we can organize the training to support that as mm -hmm. a team. That would start to make quite a big difference because then you start to get that res mutual respect as well. No, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that's that's a vision which is, of mm -hmm. course, I guess, enshrined in the spirit of the statutory changes that came into effect in July uh, with the integrated care systems where social care, voluntary sector, the NHS is supposed to work together. Just touching on the technology piece, uh, Mark, uh, as a tool for development and training. Uh, it's something I know it's very important uh, to you, but even more fundamentally, the, uh, the YouGov survey commissioned by uh, New Cross Healthcare found that having flexibility was vital in terms of retention. So both those issues, how important is it? I think there's uh, the Health Force app has allowed New Cross Healthcare workers to have that flexibility, but also a platform to access the training that uh, Jane's talking about. So the Health Force Go app does provide that flexibility, and there's uh, access to all of the all of the training, all of the learning within the app. So there is the ability to to learn, and we find that our staff will finish a shift at one o'clock, and they'll go on and and do learning uh, at one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. So it's literally a, a twenty four hour business, and every hundred seconds somebody is completing one of those courses. Uh, around the clock but because we are focused on uh, supporting using technology to support and scale our healthcare offer um, it gives us an advantage that we can start exploring how we use technology in, in learning mm -hmm. training traditionally has been quite a resource intensive activity yep. for a, a resource limited sector and when we've spoken to nurses or carers and talked about their, their uh, learning experience. They've said that when they've gone into shadow or they've gone in to do some sort of supported training, that often staff changes or staff shortages will limit their experience at doing that. So we're looking at how we can exploit technology to provide not just some sort of level of, uh, of training, but actually an enhanced level of, of simulation uh, and assessment. So we've got a project at the moment to see whether we can use mobile phones to assess people's physical movement. And the end game there is that we might find ourselves in a position where we can, we can assess people and sign people off as competent uh, at scale remotely uh, while they're carrying out their, their activity. So we've got a ways to go yet, um, but, uh, but I think we can support the sector by taking some of that resource burden off the off the training uh, agenda. No, absolutely. And I think we are, um, there is an imperative to expand uh, the workforce. And before I uh, segue into other things, I just wanted, Jane, to touch base on uh, less technologically uh, enshrined, but vitally important, I believe, is the continued role of apprenticeships mm. within expanding the workforce and what your members are doing with that. Yes. Um, in, in home care, there are more challenges because yep. you've got, loan working and especially for young apprentices the driving piece can mm. be quite a problem in terms mainly because the insurance for vehicles when you're young is quite high but they uh, and also for a while the apprenticeship rules were not very helpful in the, with the sort of 20 percent time off the job that you had yeah. to have which nobody could really afford but there's more flexibility now in how that's delivered so yeah, you know, the, 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 I, th I think we need to do more, though, to encourage young people in particular. You, you can be any age to do an apprenticeship, but for the young people, I'm quite struck by the success that New Zealand has had in 
attracting young people into their workforce. And that's because they deliberately set out to create a career structure and they put almost like different national living wages for different levels of skill and competence and also recognized experience. In our situation here, the funding is so limited that we we struggling to do that. So, you know, the government talks about career pathways, which is lovely, but actually <laughs> if 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 they only give enough money that if you're lucky, everybody's on national living wage, regardless of whether you walked in the door yesterday or you've been there 10 years, you're not really going to encourage people to go for promotion and do more qualifications. So the pay is really quite critical to underpin it. But Mark's right, it's not the only factor, but it, it without it, we're going to sort of struggle to create that sense of development and the, the incentives in, in my previous role, sometimes uh, staff would say to me, well, Jane, you know, why, why should I bother in going doing a qualification? Because I'm not going to get paid. I might get paid 8p an hour more or something. I might as well do more shifts at this level. And we, we just, you know, that wasn't what I wanted to do, but that was the all the funding that we had because we did a lot of state-funded work. We've got to somehow break out of that. And certainly in the, the private pay part of the market, there is more scope because the income is higher and more can be invested in the staff. And people need to be aware, of course, that the staff in home care, social care, are potentially competing with NHS roles, which offer a wider range of uh, benefits. In terms of the just touching upon the expansion of the of, of the home care and the social care mm. workforce, the, uh, the, the YouGov survey, the New Cross Healthcare Commission, found that people do want to uh, have careers within the sector. But mm. astonishingly, 67% of those that were surveyed who were interested didn't know how to enter the sector. So I, I guess there's an opportunity of advocacy and having ease of access technologically for people to be able to understand how you go about doing that. Absolutely. And we've seen during the pandemic that we've uh, there's been a lot of other sectors that have closed down and uh, we've seen new people coming into care so they may be estate agents or um, who else have we spoken to? Uh, uh, human rights lawyers, um, you know, a whole range of different people have come into, come into uh, the care sector. And Jane mentioned that there is a huge sense of fulfillment and satisfaction that they get from doing that. But they say, actually, I'd love to continue this, but I've got a family to feed. I've got, you know, if we can demonstrate to them these career pathways where, so nursing degree, for example, if uh, if your aspiration is to, is to have a career and you can find a pathway that will take you through to a, a nursing qualification for free, then I think people that we've spoken to would be very attracted by that. The prospect of going into debt to get a nursing degree and then move into a job that is relatively low paid compared to other degrees that you might uh, mm. get and other professions that you might get into and having to pay all of that that tuition feedback and so on is is an absolute travesty really so yeah i think that the uh, the prospect of offering nursing degrees for free and all of the career opportunities leading up to that uh, and perhaps beyond uh, is is what we can provide into the mix. I think it will be a, a profound step change. We, we, we've talked about pay again, we've talked about uh, funding. Uh, I'd like to come back to that, if I may, uh, not restricted to that, but um, the, the, the social services directors are um, on record as showing demand is inexorable, and it's rising 
we have the challenge of the cost of living crisis, which we can't ignore. Um, I wanted to touch upon your campaign for a minimum price for, for home care because it is commissioned, it is paid for by uh, local authorities over £2 billion in England alone. How important is that that we have an understanding that there is a minimum price and it's not plucked out of the air. There's a lot of science around this which comes back and informs the pay rates. Yeah, it's absolutely vital and we're actually quite pleased that as part of the government's charging reforms they have told local authorities that they have to conduct cost of care exercises which we've been calling for for years. Um, they are currently analysing the data five trailblazers have already reported completely ex uh, as expected from our perspective you know they, these numbers seem to be coming out at 20 to 30 percent higher than the pay rate the fee rates that they're actually paying and we've said for years that it, it in our view it should be unlawful for public sector commissioners to purchase care services for lower fees than it's possible to ensure compliance with regulations, both employment regulations and care regulations, but particularly employment, because it's national minimum wage, yeah. that that is, is the issue there. So I think it's positive that the, the government is doing this. The, the next thing we've got to try and do is extract more money from them. <laughs> um, because at the moment, we think that they've probably allocated about a tenth of what is actually needed. That's a, a big job that I'm, you've been involved in for, for many years. Um, and to really fi finish off, we, I just want to paint a broader picture. We, we are at a stage of uh, profound change. The move, which just goes back 10 years, um, policy initiatives, if not longer, community-based care, joined-up ecosystems. Um, are, are you hopeful that home care will finally be able to have the recognition it deserves? And, and what are the opportunities you see in terms of new roles? Because, as you say... Care delivery is changing, treatment is being revolutionised, and home care workers must, by definition, play a vital role in, in its delivery over the next few years. I feel optimistic in the, um, in the white paper, People at the Heart of Care. There was a very strong element of that vision that was about keeping people well at home. I think everybody sees the sense of doing that. At the moment, the rhetoric and the funding don't quite match, but I think we're marching inexorably to that point. Um, I mean, I should say that care homes will always be needed. Uh, they have a place, you know, not everybody is, can be looked after at home. And I think um, one thing which is quite important is that there are many different types of roles in care organisations and in, in the larger ones, you know, all the kinds of roles that are in any business. So I can think of care workers who started doing care, but they've moved into HR or they've moved into finance or they've moved into IT. Uh, some of them become CEOs um, and others, you know, you can do the, the sort of nursing line that Mark said um, through uh, qualifications sort of level three level five then the degree technology uh you know we we created some roles called care technologists in my mm. previous organization and we're going to see more of that because more people at home have, have got monitors and uh you know remote consultations we saw that developing during the pandemic but just because of sheer lack of people we're going to have to do more of that i believe um but I think the way that the health and care system operates at the moment needs to change to accommodate that. So, for example, if you have a loved one at home with monitors in their house and you discover that they've fallen, 
knowing that is only useful to you if somebody can go and pick them up. Absolutely. Um, and at the moment, those responsive services are not universal and they're not accessible by everybody. And the GPs are very overworked. So if, if we if we monitor everybody's blood pressure, let's say, and we go to the GP and say, we've noticed that there's been a change in Betty's blood pressure, at the moment, they'll probably say, oh, please don't tell me about Betty's blood pressure. I, can't, <laughs> I haven't got any time to worry about it. So we, we need to think of some other ways of handling those kind of, um, you know, the, the data that comes from it. And But I, I feel quite excited because I think, you know, data is the key, um, that there's some very clever sort of data science that can be done with very simple observations. Um, in There was a paper that was published by a French group that sort of showed that you could predict with 70% accuracy admission to A&E two weeks before it happened, just on the basis of observations that home care workers made. So if you imagine scaling that, uh, training them to be able to do those observations and to, to do that record keeping and to give them that professional support, I think will make a huge difference. Well, scaling that alone might help the NHS get its efficiencies mm, targeted mm. One, in one go. One final word from you, Mark, just listening to that, the expansion of technology roles um, as part of a broader mission. I know that New Cross have to democratise uh, advances in treatment uh, and, and care at home. Just you're obviously going to be, uh, you've got a, quite a big target there to expand the, the level of training that you've got right across the board. Yes, universal access to free healthcare education to everyone is quite a quite a big ambition, um, and uh, we're right on the start of that. But we're we're encouraged by the appetite that we've seen over the last four or five years with the access to learning from our healthcare staff and uh, social care staff within Newcross, and we don't see that the rest of the sector will be any different. That there will there will continue to be that appetite for for learning. So. While it may be society needs to catch up in terms of the value that it places on the on uh, healthcare and social care as a career, I think people within those sectors do value what they do uh, and they take it seriously. And one of the obligations of taking it seriously is to is to upskill yourself uh, and develop your understanding of what it is that you're doing. So, yeah, I'm encouraged by. Uh, the culture and attitude of the people within the sector. But I think the debate is how the rest of society supports that, encourages that, enables that. No, absolutely. I think for me, the, that idea of providing universal access free for training and opportunities is, is profound. I think the hope that uh, Jane has shared in terms of the future for home care and its place in this new ecosystem is inspiring. We do need to get the funding and the pay rates and the advocacy for the home care sector can, must continue ceaselessly. Um, on that note, I know we could speak, spend hours on this con uh, these subjects, but I'm, I think that's the right place there to close for today. So I'd like to thank you, Mark, for, for your time thank and you your um, uh, enlightening uh, views about what's uh, training and development opportunities. And Jane, as ever, thank you for your candour and uh, your wisdom. Thank you very much. You're welcome. If you've enjoyed this episode of Voices of Care, please like, subscribe or follow us from wherever you receive your podcasts. And if you really want to f learn more information about how we're enabling the workforce of the future, please visit us at newcrosshealthcare.com forward slash Voices of Care. In the meantime, I'm Sahel Mirza. Goodbye and thank you. <laughs>